today we are going to start a series leading up to Easter. And there's going to be a four teachings, and there'll be four different accounts from the Gospels where Jesus warns his disciples and the people that are listening of his upcoming death. And, you know, when you, when you read the Gospels and you listen to Jesus, sometimes I get a little bit almost frustrated at times with how Jesus speaks, like, vaguely or just sort of in these analogies or these parables. Sometimes I'm just, just tell them, Jesus. Like, just be frank. Um, but, you know, you don't see Jesus just overwhelm his disciples and his followers with the details of his death and resurrection. But he just, he leaves these things and these teachings that actually come very aware after his death and resurrection. You know, their aha moments at what he was telling them often didn't come until after he had died and rose again. And then it sort of all made sense to them. But anyway, in this series, Broken is what we're calling it. Broken meaning his body is going to be broken for us. He had to go to the cross for us. That was his mission to go to the cross for us. So he was broken before us. And today, what we're going to look at is John. And we're going to look at the passage where Jesus goes into Jerusalem for the Passover and goes to the temple. And when he gets to the temple, he's really upset at what he finds. And this account is actually in all four Gospels, but the only difference is when. Uh, John has this account right away at the beginning of his account, where the other three Gospels, it comes towards the end of Jesus' ministry and what we would call like the Holy Week or that you know week going up to his death and resurrection. And the other three Gospels, this happens towards the end of his ministry before the cross. So John's account has it towards the beginning, and there's speculation, did that happen twice? Did he go into the temple twice and, uh, you know, turn the tables and get upset? Or are they speaking of the same account, only John, for some reason, puts it earlier in his uh, gospel compared to the other ones? I don't know for sure whether this happened once or possibly twice, but I do know that it's recorded in all four Gospels that Jesus comes into Jerusalem. He's upset at what he sees, and that is where we're going to pick up in Scripture today. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to turn to John. Father, I just thank you for this opportunity to look into your word, Lord I pray that this message would just be from you, Father, in your heart. Lord, I pray that if there is anything that is not of you, Lord, that you would strip that, God, and that our hearts would be pure as we go to your word to receive from you this morning. Lord, I pray as we look into this Easter season that we would prepare our hearts to just receive the fullness of who we are in Jesus Christ, the fullness of of the cross and its benefits for us. Lord, we thank you for dying that way for us. So in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So if we go and turn to John, we're actually going to turn to John chapter 2. 
And I'll let you turn there. And it's right away in John 2, starting in verse 13. And this is where Jesus is coming to Jerusalem for the Passover. So John 2:13 says, "The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple, with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out all the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was not speaking of the, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not trusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. So Jesus arrives to the scene, to the temple, And he was upset. He was upset at what was taking place. The most significant part in this scripture, initially when we read it, is where Jesus refers to himself as the temple. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Here is one of those times that he is dropping a hint at what is coming without saying it outright, right? He's not referring to the big building, the temple. And what's really significant, he says, destroy this temple, and who will raise it up? I will. So he's referring to himself as the temple of God. So he's identifying himself as God here not just man. And that is significant because that very thing is what drove the Jewish people and those Pharisees just nuts because they could not comprehend someone claiming to be God. They had a God already, (laughs) Yahweh, okay, the father, right, of Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac, This was their whole lives they devoted to worshiping their God devotely. And so this is just turning their world upside down. And even though in this very statement they didn't even get it, you know, they're like, what? 
you can't destroy this temple. You know, it took all these years to build this. So they didn't get it in this moment. But throughout the scripture, Jesus is referring to himself as a son of man. And he's, he's putting himself in this place of authority that just threatened this Jewish way of thinking and these Pharisees' ways of thinking. So this is just so astonishing that he refers to himself as a temple. Okay, the temple was very sacred to these people. And I just want you to almost put yourself in the place of these people and even the disciples that came from Jewish backgrounds. Um, You know, for Jesus to refer to himself as a temple, the temple was such a holy place. All they knew was uh, of priests and sacrifices and animal sacrifices. And in the temple, we know that um, there there was courts and there were places that only certain people could go. You know, there's the court of the Gentiles, and they could only go so far. Women, you know, there was the court of the women. Priests could go to a certain point. And then only the high priest, the high priest, once a year, could go into the holies of holies. So that was like the ultimate point of the temple. And he could go in once a year to make atonement for his people. So this holy place, the temple, is now what Jesus is saying is in him. What a strange concept. And um, do you remember after, after Jesus, when he dies, you remember the story where the temple veil is torn? You know, there's an earthquake. It's quite a display. And then that temple veil is torn. Well, I want to show you the picture of what that looks like so there's there's a veil and it is in place so that you could not go beyond that point that high priest could only go beyond that point what once a year and this is the holies of holies and when that veil tore when jesus died it was so significant because no longer it was it was eradicating that whole old testament principle of sacrifice and atonement through this type of system because now all of a sudden jesus what he sent his holy spirit and who is the temple it gets even crazier we then become the temple when that veil is torn there's no longer a need for a high priest to go before us Jesus is our high priest, and we are his temple. And so a few years later, you will recall that crazy character, Saul, which turns into Paul, which becomes one of the greatest evangelists in our Bible. He says what in 1 Corinthians 6, 19? He says, do you not know that your bodies are the what? Temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. Whoa. Jesus is and always will be the temple of God, right? God Almighty. But then he sends the Holy Spirit for us to become the temple. And we take that word temple sort of for granted as 
you know, New Testament were believers were like, yeah, I know that. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Or do not grieve the Holy Spirit from whom you received, right? We know those scriptures, but we didn't grow up with a temple mentality. You know what I'm saying? And so for them, this is just mind-blowing that, that we are holy enough to be the temple of God. That is, is an upside-down concept for for those ears that were hearing this for the first time. But that is significant in this chunk of scripture. And, you know, whoever follows in the weeks ahead and does the series from here on part, we're going to look at these times where Jesus is saying, what? I'm going to die and be raised up. He's leaving these somewhat at times subtle hints that I'm going to die. I have to die. And yes, I am God. That's so offensive to the people hearing it, but I'm actually God. And he is saying it and hinting it and dropping it. Another thing that's really significant about this passage of scripture is Jesus becoming so angry. You know, there's only a few times where Jesus, during his ministry on earth, becomes angry like this. I can never say that word, indignant there, indignant. I just like the word angry better. Um, But he does, and this word is is used just only a few times in his ministry. And when does he, when other times does he become upset like this? You know, it's usually regarding petty legalism. You know, I talked a few weeks ago about Sabbath and those Pharisees that would just try to, you know, needle him and kind of back him into corner on these really legalities of Sabbath. That was a time that he became angry, right, at the legalism and petty religious things that they were trying to trap him in. Another time he becomes angry is, I love this account too, Jesus gets angry when uh, the people were trying to prevent the children to come to him. That's actually in Mark ten fourteen. He com- becomes angry when people were trying to prevent the children from getting near to him, right? Because what? There is the kingdom of God. Let the children come to me. That's another time he gets angry. Um, another time he gets angry is when, when he talks about people making others stumble, putting up stumbling blocks. And that's in um, Mark 18, 6 and 7, when, when people are leading others to sin. That ignites an anger in him as well. And so here we see Jesus coming to the temple, and he actually takes cords, think of it sort of as a whip, and like drives out the people and the animals. He takes a table and and throws it. He's upset. And, and the disciples who had training in the Torah, had training and the scripture said, oh, this must be like Psalm, Psalm 90, or 69.9, sorry. It says, for zeal for your house has consumed me. They recalled an Old Testament scripture. Jesus is appearing with great, what, zeal for his father's house to the point that he is acting out in anger. And he doesn't sin in his anger he doesn't 
direct his anger to anyone? Do you see how there's a point of uh, sort of what we'd call righteous anger in him for what is taking place without crossing over the line of sin? He didn't react or target or sin in his anger, but he's just full of zeal for his father's house. And then notice another thing. What is the reaction of the people? What do the people do that see this in Jesus? Well, first we see that the Jewish people said, what authority do you have? What authority do you have to do these things? And, you know, that's where he says, it says, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? They're almost asking Jesus, give us a sign that you you are who you say you are. Otherwise, you're way out of line here, Jesus. Um, but he doesn't. He doesn't perform a big miracle, and we know he could, right? Like, Jesus could have been like, well, look who I am. And, you know, I don't know. He could have done anything he wanted. He had just gotten done turning water into wine. We know at the wedding he he continues to do all sorts of miracles. But he doesn't. He doesn't. He doesn't perform a big miraculous sign. He just simply says, you know what? Destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. That's how he replies. And he's referring to himself, his body, that will be destroyed. And then after three days, risen again. And um, so the crowd is angry. The crowd is very angry at what he's done and what authority he has to do that. But it says also in this scripture that the disciples, he spoke this why, because the disciples remembered after he indeed died and rose again, they remembered what he had said. He did this on purpose. Jesus did everything on purpose. (laughs) And he said this on purpose. So the disciples would believe that they would see the fulfillment of the scripture, the words spoken by Jesus himself. The disciples had their aha moments so much after Jesus was no longer walking hand in hand with them. Can you imagine? I just try to put myself in the disciples' feet. I feel for them. I feel for them because I just like things told to me. And it would just be hard for me, too, to be a follower of Jesus and always just be like, oh, he says we're going here. Now we're doing this. What is going on? It would have been hard for me to walk in that sort of trust. And then he's dropping all of these little little parables and these little analogies and all of these things. And you're trying and, you, you know, their minds must have been, been so tired from trying to figure out what this Jesus was doing. And um, after he dies... It's like, oh, remember when he said that? He was talking of his body. Whoa, he's not there in the tomb anymore. Remember when he said that? You know, they're having all these aha moments, and it just, he did it on purpose so that they could see the fulfillment of his words and that he was who he said he was. And I've been challenged as I looked into the scripture 
of sort of what had started taking place at the temple and what made Jesus so angry. I'm like, oh, we don't have temple worship anymore. Like, I don't set up booths outside victory and make money off y'all. Like, we aren't, you know, selling necklaces for our own profit here, you know. I was kind of thinking, like, oh, I think we're okay. But I really started digging into what the real reasons and the whys behind what was going on and how that might look for us today as we gather to worship what could i be doing that upsets the father what could i be doing that grieves the holy spirit in me and you know when we go to this time of what the church has called lent you can call it whatever you want but this period of time before easter when as a church worldwide celebrates the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's often a time that's filled with contemplation. And some practices, people fast something. You know, it's this place where we try to look at the seriousness of our faith. And that, I think, is crucial. And not just during Lent, but all throughout the year looking at ourselves and seeing, hmm, am I just playing church? You know, these people were going to the temple to worship, and they were still doing that, but they just had added a lot of noise to that activity that was not supposed to be there. And so, you know, I've been reflecting on that. Lord, make me a disciple that stays true to why we're here and what we're doing. I don't want to just go and then add a bunch of noise like they were doing, add a bunch of, uh, he, he gets mad actually in the Mark account and says, why have you turned my father's house into a market? You know, this shouldn't be a shopping mall. This is the temple where we go to worship. And there are three things that I want to reflect on that had crept in to the culture here that could creep in today, just in a little different form. The first one is when we come for corporate worship. Now, I understand that worship is a lifestyle. Worship is in your house. Worship is in your workplace. Worship takes place at your home because you're a believer. It can take place wherever But this morning, I'm actually going to focus on when we come together for corporate worship. At Victory, it's 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings or 9.30 in the summer. Um, Or if you're attending a house church, it's taking place when believers come to one location to worship. That's what I'm focusing on this morning. So when I come here to worship, the first thing I want to ask myself, am I doing it out of religious duty or heartfelt desire? See, these people were going to the temple for Passover because it's just what they did. Like if you were a child and were brought up in the Jewish culture, you had no say in this. This is just like what you did. You went to the temple. 
And these people would go to Jerusalem three times a year for festival. They would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem three times a year for the festivals. Uh, Before temple worship, even if you were like an Old Testament believer in God, you know, you would go to the local um, tabernacles. Before temple worship, there were the tabernacles, you know, the traveling things that they would set up. You know, so this was just part of your life. You just went there with your families to worship, to listen to the, the scrolls of the Old Testaments being read. This is what you did. And, you know, I really have been convicted when I look at myself because if you grew up in a religious home, it's just what you did. You, you went to church. Now, some of you didn't, so you can't relate to this. Um, but if you were raised in a home, you just went to church on Sundays. It's just what you did. It's great. It's a great practice to go to church. Awesome. I'm glad you go to church every Sunday. But what can happen when you go to church every Sunday and it becomes something like brushing your teeth in the morning, it can be fall into a very religious duty, right? It can just become habit instead of a heartfelt desire. You know, if you grew up going to church somewhere else, maybe you went and you just stood and sit and kneeled and clapped and puffed and out you went. And a lot of times you can just go in, do church, and leave almost mindlessly. But, you know, you can do that here too. (laughs) Seriously, like in a charismatic setting, you can do the same thing. You can just come in and just like listen to the songs and hopefully get a few little nuggets from the message and just leave almost mindlessly, right? You don't have to engage your heart. You can just go through the motions. And I hope and I pray that, that we don't do that, right? And I know I've been guilty of that. I know I've had to mid-worship repent in the middle of the worship songs. Go, My mind is not here, right? Jesus, forgive me. I have came this morning to be with all of you wonderful people to praise the living God. But my mind is, isn't here. Jesus, forgive my heart for that. There's something powerful when we come together to worship corporately and whatever that looks like when our hearts are right. So this happened for them just like it could happen to us. They were coming to do this thing, and over time they added, oh, let's start selling the doves. They need the doves for the sacrifice, you know, and they just added to make this thing less and less sacred. The second thing I wanted to reflect on was, am I coming for the noisy comforts instead of the pure worship? And I want to read a little, just a little paragraph from a Bible commentary I was reading, anticipating this message. And I just loved the way Bruce says it in his commentary on the book of John. Just listen to what he describes that was taking place at the temple. He says, In this house of God, a place dedicated to the prayerful seeking of God and the offering of awe-filled worship to his majestic name, Jesus says, how dare you turn my father's house into a market? Instead of solemn dignity and the murmur of prayer, 
there was the bellowing of cattle and the bleeding of sheep. Instead of brokenness and holy adoration and prolonged petitions, there was noisy commerce. I love the picture that paints of what had happened. The market, or excuse me, the temple had become a noisy market full of sheep and cattle and selling and bargaining instead of a place of prayer and petition. And I think about, oh, Lord, how have we made church too noisy? And I don't mean... It should be a place of quietness because I'm about as a loud, praise-filled woman as you find. <laughs> so, but I mean, yes, praise and worship, be joyful, clap, dance, sing before the Lord. But how have we corrupted the church and made it filled with noise instead of for the one purpose of coming here to praise the Almighty God? This building is not about us. It's about him. How have we made it noisy at times? I think about the difference, and please hear me correctly. There's a difference in what you do as a church to draw people to try your church than what you do to keep the people coming to church. Okay, so... I'm not, I'm not dissing anything we do to draw or try or woo people to come into the church. But those are not the tactics that are going to keep people coming to church. You can have the best seats, and we have comfortable seats here. <laughs> and you can have the best coffee, and you can try this and that, and even, dare I say, marketing things to... Get someone that might not come into a church to come into your church. But what is going to keep him keep them here? If it's not the presence of God, they're not going to stay. We saw that in the revival this last, you know, month play out. They were coming from all over the country. For what? It was just this little chapel, non-professional singers. No organization, but what were what was keeping them there? All these students across the nation. It was the presence of God. It was a heart that wanted to meet God so much. And that's what we, that is our primary focus as any church across the world. It, our primary focus when we come to church is to draw near to God And give him the praise and adoration that he deserves. He is worthy. He is the reason we're here. God is the one who was, is, and is to come. He is the one that we come and offer our prayers and our petitions. And he is the one that says we're worthy. And so he is why we come. So I I reflect on, let's not make the worship experience so noisy that we start coming for the noise instead of him. Amen?
And so I said, oh, Lord, may we not become noisy. And I don't want to give too many examples because I feel like you're going to take those things as gospel. And I'm not, <laughs> I'm not ripping any specific thing. It's the heart behind them and the reason we're here. Another thing I wanted to really reflect on is, are we coming for selfish gain versus selfless sacrifice? Now, there were people in the courts that were downright taking advantage of the religious devote that were coming to worship God and make sacrifice. There were people coming with pure hearts to this temple to worship God. There was. But there were also people coming because they can make a few bucks. You know, think about it. Um, Especially on the festival weekends, people were coming from all over. All over. And it was way more convenient for these people to buy their animal when they got there instead of haul their animal to Jerusalem. I mean, who wants to make the trip with a dove or a sheep or something? I mean, I don't. I'm like, I'll pay a, a few extra bucks to buy it when I get there, right? And so there was sort of a convenience element to what was taking place at the temple, right? And even the heart behind it probably wasn't even wrong initially, right? I think that's important to point out too. Like, just the act of coming to worship, getting your, your animal that needed to be sacrificed, okay, there, instead of hauling it, fine. But there was just, there was, the heart behind it got corrupted, and people were making money. And in the heart behind those selling was not right. And God recognized that. And then pretty soon, I can't even imagine. Now, I'm just speculating things. Now, I don't know. We know that they could buy doves. We know they could buy animals here. But I just, I can't imagine what other things people thought of that they needed. Like, hmm, what else do these people need that we should sell them when they come into town? Like, I mean, if you're a business woman or man, like this is an opportunity, right? Um, There are travelers coming to town. What can I sell them at the temple that these people need? And the heart, the heart behind the temple worship was corrupted. And this is why Jesus gets angry at what he finds. And, you know, they were coming and they were doing something that was for their own selfish gain. I think when we come to church, too, sometimes we can slip into that mentality of coming for our own experience. And I can do this, too. Come and say, like, well, I really hope, I really hope that so-and-so is on worship this morning. I really hope so-and-so is speaking this morning. Oh, I really hope Victory Junction has the, the caramel latte instead of the coconut one because I really don't like the coconut one. You know, you come sort of expecting to be served or entertained at some level, and you put expectations on the church to sort of meet your needs. And we can really fall into this mentality of entertainment especially in America, especially in the West. You know, I get convicted every time I see believers in persecuted countries going to lengths to, like, crowd into, like, a little well, a little building and have a really off-key singer belt out, Jesus loves you. You know, like, 
those type of experiences convict me to the core. Because we are so, so, so blessed in this country. I mean, we are so blessed to be able to come here every Sunday without any opposition other than the stinking roads. (laughs) And come here freely as free men and women to worship Jesus without any opposition. And not only do we get to come here, we actually have like really sweet musicians up here on stage. Praise Jesus. And we have a ton of people sitting amongst us that are giving and serving and shoveling and making the coffee and teaching the children. And praise the Lord, we are so spoiled. And I thank him for that all the time. But with that abundant blessing can come the temptation to become what? Complacent. With abundant blessing, the enemy wants to creep in with complacency and dissatisfaction and critical spirits. This house isn't serving me enough. You know, like I have a complaint about whatever. And we can all be guilty of this. And we come with the attitude of I instead of coming with the attitude of he, God, God. That is why we're here, his presence. A few weeks ago when we had that powerful time of worship, I could have stayed here for a long, long time. Anybody else? I didn't want to. I, I gave the message that Sunday. I didn't want to get up here. I was like, no, just keep playing, keep playing. I just wanted to just bask in that presence of the Lord. There is nothing we can do here. There's nothing we can produce or sell or market that will keep people coming to church and being, not just keeping them coming, but being transformed in the way The presence of God will and does. He is the reason we come. That pure worship. Now, if I hadn't finished this message at 7 p.m. last night, I would have asked our worship team. There's this old song. It says, I'm coming back to the heart of worship. If anyone remembers that song, I don't even particularly love the tune of it, (laughs) but I love the lyrics. Like, I'm coming back to the heart of worship. It's all about you. It's all about you. And it says, I'm sorry, Lord, for the things I've made it. Because it's all about you. It's all about you. I encourage you to go home and listen to that song this week. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. These people that were coming to the temple have lost completely, and not all of them, but some of them, had taken advantage and added worldly noise and lost why they were coming to the temple. And this is what Jesus gets so upset about. This is why we see that word 
zeal for my father's house. Because when Jesus was here, he had a mission. And whenever religious spirit or sin or evil came in the way of that mission, we see this zeal and this anger rise up in Jesus. And that's still true today. He is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. So I look to the Lord this week and I say, Lord, where do you want to upturn a table in my life? Is there anything that I'm doing that upsets the Holy Spirit in me? Like, I give you permission, Lord, to take out the cords, to turn up the table. As uncomfortable as that is, and as convicting as that is, we have to give Jesus permission to do it in our lives. So this is our prayer for me today. This is my prayer for us today. Lord, would you please strip me of any religious spirit, any religious duty. God, convict me where I'm adding noise and extra to what is supposed to be holy and sacred. God, convict me where I'm being selfish coming to worship instead of coming for you and you alone. Those are our attitudes. And when we come to that place of repentance and properly align our hearts for the reason we come here, oh man, God shows up. And he is so pleased with our worship. It's not something we have to earn. (laughs) God just loves us no matter what. But he is so pleased when we give him praise and adoration. He's so pleased when we adore him. Because he adores us. (laughs) It's mutual. And it's the way he designed us. So I just want to close with that today. And I want to pray that. Will you pray with me? Father, give us pure hearts. Lord, I pray that we would not slip into any, any selfish reasons for coming to worship you, Lord. I pray, God, that you would just align our hearts with who you are. Lord, may we fall more in love with you. So that when we come to worship, it is not of duty, but it's of delight. Because we love you. You're so good to us. Lord, we praise you and we thank you for sending your son Jesus as the perfect, perfect sacrifice for our sin. Lord, I thank you, Jesus, for going to the cross and being broken for us. And then being raised up. And for that veil that was torn so that I can be a temple of your Holy Spirit. So we can abide in your presence each and every day of our lives. Lord, we thank you for the indwelling of your Holy Spirit. That makes walking every day as your holy child possible. So God, I pray that we would go out and we would come to that place on our knees like the song says, 
I'm coming back to the heart of worship because it's all about you, God. It's all about you. Amen. Have a blessed week. Thank you. When the music fades, all is stripped away, and I simply go. Longing just to bring something.